The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. In fact, looking at Ajahn Chah's book, for those of you who happen to be following along, we're on chapter 29, chapter's titled, or No Abiding. It's a, a subtle teaching. I mean, I think we get it intellectually, this, you know, this practice of the mind not getting established anywhere, because... So many times when our mind does get attached or identified, it hurts. So we really get that, you know, that when my mind is grasping, clinging, identifying, attached to this or that, there's immediately some stress or tension in the mind and almost always also in the body. It hurts. But the the funny thing is, as many times as we see that attachment, getting identified, getting caught up doesn't work, it's like we're blind in a way. The only thing we can think to do about that is to get attached again, like to be attached to not doing that, for example. To be identified as being bad because we're doing it, or identified with the thought of how good it will be when I don't do that. So we in a sense, have a see the problem that all of our instincts are off. We miss sort of like where freedom is. And so we always attempt to be happy, attempt to be free in ways that actually are stressful. That's the great predicament that most of us are in most of the time. We want to be happy. We want to be free of all of our dramas, live in a world, a complicated world, but not be burdened or oppressed by the world we inhabit. But it doesn't seem to work, even though, in a sense, our intentions are right. Everybody wants to be free. I mean, you don't, you could interview everybody on this planet, and no one's going to say, I don't really want to be free, or I don't really want to be at ease, or I don't really want to be loving and wise. Nobody says that. We all want to be free and loving and wise. So why is it that we don't end up there? What is wrong with the way we're practicing, or the way that we are, the way that we're understanding? When Ajahn Chah first uh, became a monk, he says in this chapter how he didn't really understand why people were sitting and doing walking meditation in the Thai forest tradition. You know, they're practicing out in the forest, and they usually get a walking path, maybe 40 feet long or so, and so they'll sit as long as they're comfortable sitting, and then they'll walk for an hour or more, and then they'll sit for a while and walk and sit and walk back and forth like that. And he just didn't get it. Like, why are people doing that? And then over time, he it dawned on him, just from his own practice and reflection, that uh, we don't go anywhere in our in the deepening of our understanding without a continuity of mindfulness. Unless the mind is actually present with the way that it is, present with the activity of the mind itself, we don't learn anything, nothing changes. So the first step, just to begin to 
address uh, being a human being that tends to react or respond to life in unproductive ways, right? We are always reacting or responding to what comes up in our day with attachment. Even though we experience how that doesn't work, no matter how we conceive it, we always seem to be able to justify getting attached to something. So we're always leading with that move, get attached, get identified. Oh, this is what I'll do. It's like the only thing that keeps us from being depressed is we imagine some thought that we get attached to and it, it's sort of invigorating, enlivening in a limited way for a while until it's no longer enlivening. And then we have to either construct another idea of our life or what we're going to do or whether it's a distraction or I'm going to really fix myself this time. And we cling to that, we get attached to that, and again, it gives us some life. So in a way, it's like leapfrogging. We leapfrog from one attachment to another and, and seemingly extract a little juice from each attachment. Because each attachment, even if it's like I'm attached going home and watching this TV program, and I'll get a little relief from the oppressiveness of my mind, I'll have some entertainment for a while, and then I'll fall asleep. And yeah, I'll have to deal with the next day, but now. And so we can get attached to even relatively simplistic things like that. Or call my friend, or you know, do whatever. So Ajahn Shah understood that nothing changes without this continuity of mindfulness. And the Buddha emphasizes, well, then practice being mindful when you're sitting, walking, standing, and lying down. Meaning, practice all the time. So you can use these postures basically as a reminder that there's really no moment we can't practice. And we're practicing being aware that it's like this now. So that's what we mean by mindfulness, bringing that calm, clear presence that reveals, oh, this is how it is. This is the nature of the body and mind right now. And if we can do that continuously something begins to arise in our minds that is a little surprising and I think mostly disturbing is that we see how we get pushed around by good and bad, pleasant and unpleasant experience. So when we have some continuity through the day or even through our meditation, like for a 30-minute sit, over and over again, you know, experience is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And if we're just in that place of being mindful, mindfully aware it's like this, then we notice that when it's pleasant, the mind reacts. And when it's neutral, the mind reacts. And when it's unpleasant, the mind reacts. So there's no experience of feeling pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral that the mind isn't reacting to. And the more that we have this continuity of mindfulness, the more it breaks our heart because we see that for as long as we can remember and we imagine going out in the future, the mind is getting pushed around by feeling. Every experience we have, every moment of the day, has a feeling associated with it. It's either pleasant, neutral, or unpleasant. And unless there's a lot of wisdom in that moment, the mind reacts to the pleasantness, neutrality, or unpleasantness of the moment. It takes it personally. 
it personally, you know, has some drama around the pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality of the, like even this moment for each of us, different, of course, for each of us, but everybody here right now is having an experience, and this experience is either neutral or relatively pleasant or relatively unpleasant. And if we're not wise, if we're not mindful and wise, then we're reacting habitually to the pleasantness, unpleasantness, and neutrality. And see, this is exactly what we need to see. This is a little different than some of us conceive of meditation, because in some ways we hear about meditation, we really think about it as secluding ourselves from the craziness of the world, or secluding ourselves from the craziness of our minds, getting into a really soft and peaceful place where the messiness of my mind or the messiness of the world doesn't intrude for a while, and I get a real break. And then at the end of the sit, I feel better, I feel more calm, and I'm ready to go back out in the world. That's part of what happens in meditation, but ultimately it's not what our practice is about. Our practice is, it's good to develop that calm, but we want to use that calm to, uh, in a sense, move more fully right into the middle of the way that it is, right into the middle of the messiness. And in particular, this it's subtle, but this dynamic that I described, where here there is this great heart that's sensitive, right? This raw, tender sensitivity. Because that's really the essence of the mind is the sensitivity. We're sensitive to sounds and sights and thoughts, sensations, smells and tastes, right? And so we move right into the middle of that. We inhabit the middle of that sensitivity. And then in that middle of that sensitivity, things are being known. And everything that's being known is going to be perceived as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And every time we perceive something as being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, <clears throat> there is this conditioning, this habit energy that arises around it. And we see that with some continuity. And as I mentioned, it breaks our hearts because we realize how oppressive it is being a sensitive human being. Without wisdom, being sensitive is an oppressive state. Why do you think our economy is built on distraction? Because... It's really difficult being a sensitive being. So we have all kinds of things to help us desensitize, basically, be caught, be lost in different activities and different dramas so that we don't actually have to feel what we're feeling. So, But the thing is, by being willing to feel what we feel and notice all the reactivity that arises around the feelings that we have, Pleasant, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings that we have. Then it really begs the question, right? How to be a sensitive human being? How to be right in the middle of this great sensitivity that just comes with being a human being without being oppressed by it? And this really leads us to this, the title of this chapter. Ajahn Chah used the phrase, no abiding, or you could say maybe non-abiding. So that's, you know, that's the, that's a sort of paradoxical phrase, like how to be here in the middle, but not a body, not established or caught in the different feelings that are coming and going. Feeling, being aware, 
but not pushed around by the different feelings. So we have a word for that, right? We can say, well, that's non-attachment or non-clinging or non-grasping. That's really, it's a practice. So there's no, there's no, there's none of this realization, this awakening without that continuity of mindfulness. But that con- continuity of mindfulness does two things. On the one hand, it does create a tranquility, you know, because by being mindful, especially when we're in a relatively safe environment like a, com- a meditation at common ground or quiet place at home, and we cultivate a continuity of mindfulness. So we're mindfulness, for example, of the breathing, the breath coming in, the breath going out, the breath going in, the breath going out, or we're mindful of just the predominant sensations of sitting, you know, just feeling the vibration of sitting, feeling the strong sensations of sitting, but just letting those sensations be, or mindful of hearing. And uh, when we're doing that, then there's less of this reactivity to what's coming and going, right? Because we're cultivating mindfulness. Mindfulness is non-attachment, non-reactivity. We're letting things be what they are. Because there's no way to be mindfully aware and reacting. So by being mindfully aware of the breath, we're just, we have to let the breath come and go in order to be mindfully aware of it. We have to let the body sensations be what they are in order to be aware of it. So we get some immediate tranquility just by being having some continuity of mindfulness. But then with that continuity and that tranquility that comes from the continuity, it allows us, you know, that it allows the mind, the heart, the steadiness of the heart and mind to in a sense trust even more fully the what's coming and going in our experience in more subtle ways. So it's like, you know, we think sensitivity is just one thing, but there's a, the experience of the sensitivity of the mind really depends on how sensitive the mind is. I know that sounds funny to say it that way. But like, like right now, we already know that the mind is sensitive to hearing, to seeing, to smelling, to tasting, to touching, and to thoughts. But our mind right now is not that sensitive, or it's as sensitive as it is. But when it gets more sensitive, then then we go, oh my God, this is what sensitivity is. I've talked to a lot of people recently who have been on a nine-day retreat because uh, Kamala Masters and Steve Armstrong just led their 20th retreat for this community uh, sponsored by the Twin Cities Vipassana Collective, a uh, sister organization to Common Ground. And so a lot of people came off this eight-day retreat, and our office manager, Shelley, just came off of a three-week, maybe even a little longer retreat. So she did that nine-day retreat and then continued on her own for another couple weeks. And, uh, you know, so people, many people have talked about just that amazing sensitivity and how... In some moments, it feels so oppressive to be so sensitive. Like, it's not even your own emotions that are strong, but just being around somebody else, and it's like you just get a sense of what they're feeling, their anger, their happiness, their whatever. And then the whole world and the squirrels 
and the birds. It's like everything, even the stoplights, like, like so red or so green. Some of you remember this from ingesting certain chemicals when you were younger. Oh, wow. But there's a little truth to that in terms of practice. And it's not just when you go on retreats, although it stands out a little bit more when you're on retreats, because it's a real change. You know, you're, you've developed the sensitivity or you've exposed the sensitivity and the awareness of the sensitivity amplifies it too. So there's two things. There's the natural sensitivity and now the mind isn't distracted. So it's aware of the natural sensitivity with great sensitivity. And so all of a sudden, the nature of the mind, the sort of sensitive nature of the mind, the great, raw, tender, sensitive heart is revealed. I sometimes mention when I grew up, I had two wonderful ceramic statues in my bedroom as a kid. One was St. Joseph and one was St. Francis. And I was grew up as a Catholic. And, and they both, and this is not so uncommon in sort of Catholic, uh, sort of artistic de- depictions of their saints, you know, they... They have the heart sitting out a little bit, you know, three or four inches outside of the chest. This, like, raw heart. And that's, that is such a potent image to sort of just have a sense of something that, you know, we normally hide behind this ribcage, protected, you know, that out there for the whole world, flies can land on it, you know, people could poke at it. But that's... That's actually a really useful image, like as an aspiration for us would-be saints, you know, those of us who would like to be wise and loving in the world, to like learn how to uncover that sensitivity. And like I mentioned a few minutes ago, what we become sensitive to, first and foremost, is how this great habit of our mind, this great conditioned habit to react to the pleasantness and unpleasantness and neutrality. What do we do with things that are neutral or ordinary? We react by trying to ignore them because they're not important, because it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So why should I even bother to notice it? So we're like, don't bother me. You're nothing. You're just ordinary. And that's a powerful way of disconnecting from the world. It's really unwholesome. It causes suffering, that habit. And we start to see we're sensitive to how much of the world of experience we're dismissing because it's neither clearly pleasant or unpleasant. So there's just this arrogant assumption it's not worth noticing, it's not worth feeling, it's not worth paying attention to. And then the pleasant experience arises and that strong wave of conditioning says, you know, hold on to that, don't let anybody take that away, fight for this, boy. You know, any threat to this, you stand up. And so... Of course, it just triggers a lot of tightness. Every pleasant thing. You see a pleasant person, attractive person. You have a pleasant thought about your future. doesn't matter what the pleasantness is. Grasping, attachment, holding, pushing away threats. Anything that's unpleasant, whether it's a thought or a person or an experience or sensations in the body, it just makes so much sense to be tight about it, to be averse to it, to push it away in one way or another to want to destroy it. And so we're just now sensitive to this, sensitive to this endless stream of reactivity around the feeling that's arising in our experience. Unceasingly, we see this. And like I mentioned, it breaks our heart 
And it really uh, causes the arising of this deep yearning. Is there a way to be free? Is there a way to be free? And initially we think, yeah, there's a way to be free. Don't be sensitive. So we, that's why we drink and do drugs. That's why we watch a lot of TV or endlessly chatter about things that don't need to be talked about. Because we're seeking to disconnect from the sensitivity. But now, with some continuity, we see that that doesn't work. That that's just more of the being pushed around. Trying not to feel, not to be sensitive, doesn't make us not sensitive. It just makes us unaware of our sensitivity. There's nothing we can do about being this great, raw, open, tender heart. That's just the nature of being a human being. But what we can do is we can uh, infuse the sensitivity with wisdom. And this is what's meant by no abiding. Or we could say it's a little more normal usage for us or language we understand. Non-attachment, non-clinging. In the world, sensitive not afraid of being a human being, not afraid of duties and responsibilities, not afraid of having a body, not afraid of sexual energy, not afraid of having to earn a living, having to make choices, but not attached. Like, what does that look like? What would that look like? I'll share a little bit from Ajahn Chah, how he talks about it. He says, if we know the truth of our various moods, if we know the consequences of clinging to praise and blame, the danger of clinging to anything at all, we will become sensitive to our moods. We will know that clinging to them really does cause suffering. We see the suffering, and we see our very clinging as the cause of that suffering. We begin to see the consequences of grasping and clinging to good and bad. We've grabbed them. We've seen the results, no real happiness. So now we look for a way to let go. Where is this way to let go? Yes. In Buddhism, we say, don't cling to anything. We never stop hearing about this, quote, don't cling to anything, unquote. This doesn't mean that we can't hold things, but we don't cling. And then he gives some examples, like, you know, you pick up the flashlight, you have to take a hold of it. You use it, and then you put it down. Well, he talks about uh, a monk that came to his monastery. You know, that monk had to want to come to the monastery. But we don't have to get attached. Everybody here, we had to want to be here tonight to get here. So this is really the art. Like, don't assume that non-grasping, non-clinging means being passive. Because even being passive is just can be just another attachment. Like, no... I can't do anything. And that was, you know, the Buddha's life, you know, as a, as a story at least, uh, reveals this. Like he, he really got into ascetic practices, fasting and all sorts of traditional ascetic practices. 
and then rejected them because they were different ways of saying, no, I'm not going to get involved. Having to eat is messy, and it brings up attachment, you know? So I'm just going to avoid that. But that that's its own kind of attachment, you know? Same with sex. Now, I'm not saying there aren't advantages in modifying how we deal with food or modifying how we uh, use our sexual energy. I mean, there are, it is important to uh, these things that we tend to uh, pour ourselves into, like sexuality, like eating, like consumptions, different types of consumption. It is good, but we want to find this way where we're not assuming that we're going to find lasting happiness from acting out these natural human desires. And at the same time, not assume we're going to find lasting happiness by rejecting these natural human desires. It's like we have to uh, we have to be honest with ourselves. Like the craving for food, the natural desire to feed the body, the natural desire to have physical contact with other beings, both sort of affection and also sexual. <coughs> Relations, the natural desire to be part of a community, the natural desire to be safe, to rest. It's like we have to deal with them, but we shouldn't assume that those things are where we find happiness. We still have to deal with them, you know, as best we can, given our circumstances. Sometimes it's not even easy to deal with these basic human needs or desires. But we do our best. But we don't do them in order to have lasting happiness. Because has food ever brought lasting happiness to anybody? No. Has a sexual relationship ever brought lasting happiness or really wholesome friendship or community experience brought lasting happiness to anybody? No, the happiness is real and, and sometimes quite beautiful. But it's not what we call lasting happiness or peace or the full, as the Buddha says, the, the full, unshakable release of the heart. It's something that lasts for a while and then goes away, all of those experiences. Whatever kind of physical safety we've had, cozy in our bed, at home, visiting our grandma, or something like that, it was just that. You know, It was that experience. It lasted for a while, and then it changed. It went away. It became something else. So... If we understand that, then we, we can understand this middle way, this place of no abiding, as Ajahn Chah calls it, or non-attachment, where we know how to use the flashlight without being attached to it. We, we know how to handle having a body without thinking the health of this body is going to lead to lasting happiness, because it won't. How to have relationships without putting that heavy burden on them, like, this person has to give me lasting happiness. That's the quickest way to ruin a relationship, is somehow expecting that person to make us happy in some kind of lasting way or permanent way. It never happens. It doesn't work that way. Or even a TV show, you know, like, it's like we grasp, like, this show's got to fix my life, you know. And maybe there's a peak moment where we're so absorbed in it, we get a little release from our worries, our to-do list. But then... You know, then there's an advertisement, or the show ends. Here, I'll read a little bit more from Ajahn Chah. 
He says, in the beginning we practice with some desire in the mind. We continue to practice, but we don't attain our desire. So we practice on and on until we reach a point where we're practicing for no return. We're practicing in order to let go. This is something we must see for ourselves. It's very deep. Maybe we practice because we want to go to Nibbana, to Nirvana, which is the word, the Pali word for cessation, or sometimes it's people call this enlightenment, but it's better like the, the releasing of suffering, the letting go, the ending of suffering, the ending of stress in the heart. Maybe we practice because we want to go to Nibbana. Right there, you won't go to Nibbana, right? Because we're practicing to attain something like Nibbana or freedom. Right there, you won't go to Nibbana. It's natural to want peace, but it's not really correct. We must practice without wanting anything at all. If we don't want anything at all, what will we get? We don't get anything. <laughs> Whatever you get is a cause for suffering. So we practice not getting anything. So the practice is about understanding the release of grasping, understanding the release of attachment, understanding the release of clinging. It's not about getting somewhere. We don't actually, it's a misunderstanding to think that there's somebody who has to get somewhere in order to be happy. That is at the heart of our stress, right? Because it's the thought, I have to get somewhere to be happy, that is the cause for what? What comes out of that thought, I have to get somewhere to be happy? Attachment. What is the root of every attachment we've ever had, every moment of grasping or clinging? It's based on this idea that there's a me who needs conditions to be something other than what they are in order to be happy. When I, And then that justifies the grasping, the tightness in the heart, in the mind. So... You see, it's a real, like he said, Ajahn said, it's a subtle understanding that we need to gradually live into, grow into with our practice. First, we move in the direction of the continuity of mindful attention, and we learn to tolerate the great sensitivity that that reveals. Because it's not easy to be that sensitive in the world, to see what we see, to feel what we feel, and to notice how much of our psychological conditioning is counterproductive. It just creates stress. That is not easy to wake up to. But that's what continuity of mindfulness reveals. It's like how, not just how messy it is out there in the world. Politics is messy, you know. The environment is a messy. Mosquitoes are messy. You know, having to clean the toilet is messy. But our own internal habits, processes in, in the psychology of our mind is a mess. It's like, so unproductive, not conducive to real happiness or peace. So we start to see this in living color. But this is the way forward in practice. To be honest, to be clearly aware, oh, it's like this. This is how it is. And to learn to tolerate, learn to be at ease with the great sensitivity, because that's what reveals this cessation. The word for nibbana or nirvana is cessation, where... The mind realizes that the only work, in a sense, that needs to be done is allowing attachment to cease. We don't need to figure anything out. It's not like some Rubik's Cube 
that really good Buddhist figure out, like get it all together, and then, okay, I got it, and then, well, maybe someday you'll get it too. It's not that way. Grasping will naturally cease if everything is left alone. So as we're observing, you know, as we, in a sense, learn to, to take our place as the great, sensitive, tender heart who sees, that knows things as they are, then we'll eventually it will dawn on the mind the letting go of grasping, the letting go of attachment. It isn't even right to say that I let go of attachment today. You know, I really was seeing attachment and I put it down, I let it go. That's actually not correct. It's not so different than what Ajahn Chah was saying that I want to be enlightened. I'm practicing in order to be free. Because that sets up this uh, justification for attachment. We're attached to the idea of, be, of somebody, me, being free. Attachment doesn't lead to non-attachment. It leads to more attachment. What leads to non-attachment is being sensitive to the way it is and observing how attachment ceases. When the mind, when the heart, in its great sensitivity, sees that attachment grasping to condition ceases, then it knows the way. That's sort of the completion of what we call the Four Noble Truths, knowing the way. Oh, this is how it all works. The heart just needs to let everything cease. It's the easiest thing in the world, but it's so subtle, we keep missing it over and over and over. And the Buddha talks about this in very dramatic ways, like how long we've been missing this point. Because we're really invested in being the doer. So as we get a sense that we are a suffering being, we want to be the one who solves the problem. But that's at the root of the problem. Wanting to be the one who solves the problem is actually at the root of it. Understanding the experience of there being a problem is in the right direction. Willing to be sensitive to the experience of there being a problem, right? Being sensitive and not liking the sensitivity, being overwhelmed by the sensitivity, and learning how to inhabit that space until being right in the middle, being a sensitive being right in the middle, all of a sudden, it's not a problem. That's the moment of release, when the mind realizes that all of this isn't a problem. It's a problem, it's a problem, it's a problem, it's a problem, it's not a problem. And then the more that there are moments of it not being a problem, the, mo the more the mind, the heart understands, oh, like really understands what non-clinging is, what non-grasping, non-attachment is. Because like I said, it isn't something we do, it's something that's understood. All the mind has to do is understand cessation. And the thing about grasping is, it's not like we started to grasp when we were two and a half years old, and that, that grasping we did there is just in place and continues to be in place until we die. Grasping, like everything else, is happening moment to moment to moment to moment, which means what? It's also ceasing moment to moment to moment to moment to moment. So understanding the cessation of attachment is here and now, right? Because, like, last moment I was attached to one thing. This moment I'm attached to something else. I could have, I missed my opportunity, because in that previous moment, in order to be attached to this, that previous attachment had to cease. So the opportunity to see the cessation of attachment is in every moment. Just like 
we can see the arising of attachment in any moment because it's so common for us human beings. We can also see the cessation of attachment in any moment, really. And it's just a matter of seeing that clearly many times that is the awakening process. Every time the mind sees clearly the cessation, the putting down, the dropping away of attachment, it incrementally understands the way forward, the way to real peace, real saintliness, like wisdom and love. Every time we miss that opportunity, we're reinforcing our ignorance, you know, that uh, not seeing is the way. In a way, just to keep it simple, there's two paths the path of seeing clearly, being sensitive and seeing clearly, or the path of distraction. And you can see, you know, just looking at all, you don't have to look at yourself, just look at all your friends, and you see how much we're involved in the path of distraction. It's like we have the best minds in our society working on ways to stay distracted. And there are very sophisticated ways of being distracted. It's not all kind of, you know, things that, oh, we don't do. But even special people, like ourselves, <laughs> we just have special ways of being distracted. You know, There are a lot of people who are, uh, on, on a relative sense, really good activists. But they're using their, their involvement, their engagement with important issues as a distraction from the pain in their heart. It doesn't mean they shouldn't be doing what they're doing. It just means they shouldn't be doing that as an excuse from being real and honest with what they're feeling. Same thing with getting involved in relationships, you know. There's nothing wrong with raising children, but if you raise children in order to not feel what you're feeling, to not be present, to give yourself an excuse to be distracted, that's not a good reason to have kids or have a career or do anything, really. So we, we want to put the practice in the forefront and then whether we're an activist or a parent or all things, you know, that's great as long as we're practicing. And the practice, again, is this willingness to come into the experience of being sensitive, to cultivate a continuity of awareness of the sensitivity, to learn not to be overwhelmed by what we see, which is the mind reacting to everything that's pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant, ceaselessly, in a way that's very oppressive but to sort of learn how to develop the tranquility, the steadiness, and the wisdom that allows us to be right in the middle of that, unafraid of that, until we begin to learn the lesson of cessation, the letting go. The letting go happens. Non-attachment or the releasing of attachment happens. It happens. It happens. And the more we see it, the more we know the way to be. The heart just intuitively gets this is how to be. Non-attachment, non-clinging. So now we, we just start moving through life with non-attachment. We pick up the flashlight, but we're not attached to the flashlight. We have a relationship, but we're not attached to the person we're having a relationship to. We get involved in a political or a social issue, but we're not clinging, grasping. We're not uh, afraid of anything. We're just doing what we can do. And when we go to bed at night, we sleep like a baby. We're not holding, we're not expecting the world to be other than what it is, but we're not afraid to try to change the world either. Just because it's not perfect doesn't mean we need to be oppressed by the imperfection of my mind, my body, my world that I live in, the partner that I have. It really is liberating to be not attached. It is the liberation we've all been looking for 
for a very long time. I'll just end by reminding us what the Buddha said, that we've been cycling through missing the point for so long that we've all shed more tears than there is water in the four great oceans. That's a very provocative uh, uh, image, isn't it? You know, just how long we've missed and then unnecessarily suffered because of that. So we have 15 minutes. It would be nice to hear from people your own experiences of coming into the middle, learning how to stay open to the sensitivity that you've experienced in your life, and uh, and then your own experiences of non-abiding or this uh, non-attachment. So any questions that you have, of course, also it's a good time, but also your own experiences. Yeah, say your name. Yeah, I'm Madison. Madison? Yeah. Um, I just thought this was really, like, a lot of good stuff for me because, um, I don't know, just, like, since a very young age, I've had a lot of, like, anxiety and perfectionism, definitely. And, like, using that as kind of a way to, like, like what you were saying about how, like, I'm not happy now, but I'll be happy then. Like, if I perfect and get really good at school and, like, like it's always like this, like, my talents become things to beat. And um, I'm also a pretty naturally sensitive person, too. Like, everybody, like you said, has, like, the open, human, sensitive heart. But, like, I don't know, I just, I've always kind of been a more sensitive person. So, like, um... One way that I have blocked that out was um, I have an eating disorder and like I've been in treatment for it since January, but um, so I've been in recovery and stuff. But like that's just such a great way to block out every kind of emotion, like and just uh, just become so attached to that one thing and. Like, I mean, I've always had kind of, like, little obsessions throughout my life to kind of, like, like escape, like, in my mind and stuff. But, like, um, that's, I guess, been the biggest. And just, um, I don't know, I guess it just, like, it's just so easy to get attached to, like, even as this conversation was happening, like, yes, but getting attached to non-attachment and mm-hmm. how wonderfully enticing that is. And, um, but I really liked what you said about, like, what, well, I guess what um, Ajahn, Chah. Ajahn Chah said about, um, like, what's it that, well, I like the holding thing, the, like, that you can hold and not, um, be grasping and clinging because I was kind of while you were saying this I was like well how does this apply to life and mm-hmm. the real world physical world the all these things that you have to do and but I think it was interesting how it's like you're not you're not really seeking something like when you were when we're meditating or whatever like you're not really like seeking something you're just seeking the non-seeking of anything like you don't want to you don't want to get anything because that's what we're practicing. I just thought that was like a yeah. great thing to remember. And it's really good to end on that point. Thanks so much for your clarity and honesty, Madison. And it's a really good point that you ended on because it's just very practical to remember this point in terms of our meditation. 
And you can just remind yourself at the beginning, it's not about attainment. It's about being free with whatever's coming up, whatever's happening. So it's a real direct practice of freedom, not trying to become a perfect person or a perfect meditator or perfectly tranquil, because that's that attainment. That, and you might get relatively good at being tranquil, for example, but you're reinforcing the whole attainment idea. So instead, you could remind yourself, okay, remember, Mark, it's not about attainment. It's about being free with the sensitivity, you know, so here I'm going to allow this reality of being a sensitive human being to manifest free of distraction. And I'm going to practice being free in that experience of being a sensitive human being. And we'll notice in all the ways we're not free, right? That's the difficult part of it that I was talking about, where we notice our basically getting pushed around by our habit energy to grasp what's pleasant, to push away what's unpleasant, to ignore what's neutral. But we maintain that aspiration. Is there a way to be free here? And you really see how love comes into the equation at this point, like the compassion that cares about being pushed around by our habit energy. Oh, it's hard being a human being. I care about this. And that's what really allows for that steadiness, that patience. Until the mind begins to intuit, there's enough steadiness that the mind begins to catch the cessation of attachment, the releasing of attachment and grasping. And it, the mind intuits that. Because it's the not seeing the cessation of attachment that makes attachment seem so personal. But when the mind sees how it's naturally, attachment has to naturally cease, all of a sudden it doesn't seem personal. So it's so easy when attachment, when any sort of reactive pattern gets triggered, you know, right at its birth, right when it's arising in the moment, there's no part of the mind that's taking it personally. So it just is there and it's gone. It doesn't really have a sting or weight to it. It's already that way for us in certain places in our lives where we used to be really attached, but now there's more wisdom. And you, you'll see that the pattern is still there. It's almost like a shadow of its former self. And some, somebody will say something that when you were a teenager would have made you crazy, but now it doesn't, you know. Like maybe when you were younger, you were really obsessed by your looks, and now it's you just have a lot of space, a lot of wisdom around it. And uh, so somebody says something, and it's like that shadow pattern gets triggered. But it's like it doesn't confuse the mind. The mind knows it, has seen it so many thousands of times, and knows that it's an impersonal pattern, and it arises, and it ceases, but it's almost like it doesn't land anywhere. It's not a problem. It doesn't matter that there's that neurotic tendency because there's no part of the mind that's taking it personally anymore. And that's freedom. So that's like uh, that, again, just another description of that non-grasping or non-attainment part of practice. Other thoughts people have? I had a thought about uh, about rhythm, about a rhythm. Like um, an acting teacher of mine once said something about when you're in a part to attach to engage your will, and you can sort of see it when somebody's 
playing Iago, but they haven't engaged their will. So they're not really embodying his appetite for whatever he's doing. So they're not really completely at one in the present moment as this man is doing that. So, uh, so anyway, so that's a moment of grasping, if you want to look at it. I'm grasping the guts of Iago, and I'm just that. I am so, like we are in our lives, caught up in the circumstance of this, that I'm nothing else. So I'm totally not mindful. And then, then, the, then there's the stepping out of that. And I'm just wondering about, things happen sometimes in rhythms about a grasp or release, a grasp or release. Like maybe what, maybe looking at this non-attachment as though it was, like when the body's standing, it's not standing, it's balancing. It's going here, it's going there, it's going here. It's constantly readjusting. So I guess the question is, is it possible that grasping is just part of the rhythm of not grasping? And it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an undulation as opposed to a static state. Well, there might be some of that undulation between grasping and not grasping. But I think, uh, I think there's a little misunderstanding that with the experience of non-grasping, which is very common in just relating the experience of non-grasping with passivity or disengagement. Right. And that's such a, it's, you know, people bring it up all the time as they should because it's very subtle. And that's what we're learning. That's why we initially we practice a lot holding still, like in a sitting meditation or just in a very simple activity of walking. But we really want to be able to practice everywhere so that it isn't about, we're not confusing the experience of non-attachment, non-grasping or non-abiding with non-action. Because it's, it's very specific. It's really about not being confused by what's moving. That's really the experience of non-attachment or that what the Buddha and Ajahn is pointing to, is the experience of not being confused by what's moving in the mind. It's not about not having things move in the mind. So the, I think, like your example about playing a Shakespearean role with great intensity, full, wholehearted commitment, 100% there in the role, I don't think, I think actually mindfulness would make that easier, not more difficult. Because... What, what does an actor need to do? Well, they need to be mindful, like, of how the, those qualities of that character that they're playing, they have to be mindfully aware of those qualities right now in their heart, right? Mm -hmm. And they have to see them. And they have to be interested in them. Or they have to attach. I don't think so. I think attachment actually gets in the way, right? Trying to be Yago, or whatever the the character's name is, is not the way to be him. You know, it's true in any activity, it's not just about acting. You know, trying to be a good parent is not the means for being a good parent. Trying to be a great lover is not the means for being a great lover, right? The attachment, like, and especially the way that we use the word in Buddhism, attachment is always destructive. It causes pain and suffering, and it's dysfunctional for the person, and for those around the person who's attached. So, just by definition, because attachment is a, a kind of rigidity in the mind, and the, the rigidity in the mind isn't 
sort of natural in a way. I mean, in a se- ultimate sense, it's natural because there's nothing outside of nature, but it's, uh, it's creating some friction, that some distance. So in order to be functional and skillful, attachment needs to cease, you know. That doesn't mean, you know, we can be dysfunctional in the world. We are often dysfunctional in the world or not perfectly functional in the world. But the attachment is always sort of putting friction, putting grit in the system of our lives. And what do we feel? Well, we feel the heat from that friction, you know, the burning, the the difficulty that comes out of that friction. Still some more time for one or two? Yeah, Robert. when you spoke of freedom, I was reminded of one of my most favorite songs, and the singer is, I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break all the chains holding me. And it's been some way that numerous people by another by this moment. It's, it's so powerful. Yeah. Well, yeah, because it's such a deep archetype, this this aspiration to understand. And I think that's the beginning part because that's where we turn the corner from just running from the pain of our sensitivity to realizing to some degree that running is not the way to be free. We have to turn toward the experience of sensitivity, as difficult as that is, because the missing piece is understanding. And you don't gain understanding by running, by trying to escape. You gain understanding by developing enough steadiness, enough fearlessness, enough tranquility to be right in the middle, to see things as they are. Any last thoughts before we wrap up? Yeah, say your name. My name is Glenn. Aren't we really talking just I'm trying to conceptualize this acceptance versus expectations? Yeah, I think that that's an easy way to talk about it. I mean, and of course, the, then the question is, well, what do you mean by acceptance or what do you mean by expectations? But, yeah, acceptance is clearly related to non-attachment or what Ajahn Chah is calling here no abiding, right? Because when we're accepting, when we're free from expectation, then it's like we're not, we're not seeking happiness by getting something. We're realizing that by accepting that this is how it is now, it's already there's already a kind of peace and wisdom and love right there in understanding, well, it is already this way. And we're, in a way, there's a coming into alignment. It is already this way. This life, this mind, this body, this life circumstances, it's already this way. So any resistance is totally unnecessary because it's already this way. And it doesn't mean I can't respond or participate, but it is already this way. And we can even get a little intuitive whiff, like how liberating that is. Just to understand, it's already this way. You know, whatever my emotional pattern that's arising now that I don't like, like let's say I'm being really defensive. And I don't want to be that defensive person. I wish I'd been done with that. But it's already this way. And it's no worse than it is and no better than what it is. It's just this way now. And it's like an immediate way of making peace with conditions. So let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. We can take a breath or maybe a couple breaths.
And although this practice is subtle, we can aspire, just like the women and men before us who did their practice and their busy lives and learned enough to share their practice so one generation after another we get to be the recipients of this ancestral wisdom, this human wisdom. And now it's our turn to put these teachings into practice and to realize what can be seen and understood to become wiser, more kind, and to be passing on, modeling for others a way of being that leads to peace and freedom from suffering. So may this be so. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.